Chapter 6. Suga and His Cars There were several non-commissioned officers, sergeants, sergeant first class, etc., in charge of the MWR while I worked there. A couple of them had some other responsibilities as well. Some were supposed to only focus on our mission. It depended on the person. Who, what, and why seemed a little arbitrary, but that was par for the course for the 217th. One of these NCOs was Sergeant First Class Suga. The U.S. military officially has a height minimum of 5 feet for males. I can't swear to it, but Suga was probably no taller than 4.5 feet tall. Either he got a waiver, or I'm exaggerating his shortness. He was African, and beyond that it was difficult to figure out where in Africa he was born and raised. He would pretend he was from Puerto Rico if soldiers asked where he was from. He had this propensity for large smiles accompanied by a donkey-type laugh. Suffice it to say, he was crazy. He was the most mad motherfucker I've met in my entire time in the U.S. Army. And I've got to tell you, I've met a lot of mad motherfuckers. If I hadn't known him in person, I would have sworn he walked right out of a supervillain story. Suga had the most severe Napoleon complex I'd ever seen. I don't usually feel like someone could kill me at any moment, but that was the reaction I often had to Suga. He was incredibly threatening for a man his height. He was loud, angry, and I'm not sure if he ever didn't yell. Imagine a small, bald, smiling Jack Russell Terrier wouldn't be too far from the mark, except this Terrier had rank and had some menacing presence to back it up. Suga was officially the head NCO of the small engine shop. Those folks were tasked to work on myriad random pieces of equipment that the army has lying around. Technically, this was the shop I was supposed to have been assigned to prior to our deployment. The worst part for this shop was that the equipment they were supposed to work on, we had already had contractors around to do the work. That was the most insane thing about this deployment. There were civilians everywhere that were doing the jobs that we as soldiers were supposedly trained to do, and they had to make up jobs for us. I still struggle to wrap my head around the logic of this sort of thing. The SES shop was pretty far from the rest of the unit, probably two miles away. They had their own motor pool tucked back near one of the walls. The structures were a mix of Quonset huts, shipping containers, chews, and hand-built wooden buildings. This was probably one of the few areas that looked nice. Most of the wood was fresh, and the folks at the SES shop had a few very competent carpenters amongst them. They had a pretty swanky deck on one of the containers, which they built themselves, and it wasn't abnormal to see people relaxing under the shade of the roof there. Other than that, like everywhere else, it was nearly always covered in a thin layer of dust and grime. A few months into our deployment, something happened, and... Suga was removed from his position as NCOIC, that's the non-commissioned officer in charge of the SES. This was a gentleman that had a reputation for having been fired from jobs before, so it wasn't too much of a shock. One time he was fired because he didn't ever actually show up to his job. He arrived at a unit, signed in, but then successfully dodged every formation. Instead of doing his job, he went to school and completed a degree. I'm not sure if it was a bachelor's degree or whatever. Uh, and honestly, part of me is impressed with that level of sham, to be honest. This is the type of stuff you only get away with when you've picked up enough rank, and Suga had just enough to get away with all kinds of shit. 
I'm digressing a little bit, but the guy has so many stories it isn't funny, or it's straight up hilarious, depending on whether you care about how your tax money is managed, I suppose. So, Suga got fired from his job overseeing the SES and was put in charge of the MWR mission. When he took over, it wasn't much of a change. We didn't see him frequently, except when he came by to scream and yell at people. We'll get to some of those stories later on. They get stranger and stranger as time goes on. However, the first day on the job, he shows up with this beat-up pickup. If you don't know, and I doubt many people do, the military mission to Iraq seemed to have thousands of beat-up trucks of one form or another lying around base. Some of them were probably bought intentionally. Some might have started off as locally owned equipment. Regardless, there were vehicles all over the place and a weird little gray market for their sale between people on base. This first vehicle of Suga's was a gray F-250 with rotten rust holes in the doors and a busted-out headlight. Most states in the U.S. would have arrested him for driving it. Well, Suga rolled up in this truck, shrugged, and moved on. No one questioned it. He was high enough rank that he could have gotten approval to have it, or he might have simply been borrowing it. You know, you don't really question this sort of thing unless you're looking to get an ass-chewing. The next week, though, he pulls up in a dirt buggy. and I don't know how to describe it in any other way. The thing was a straight-out-of-a-comic-book or cartoon dirt buggy. It had a roll cage, was painted in Iraqi sand brown, and had these huge tires. I got all kinds of fuzzy feelings looking at the thing, and I'm not a big car person. And I said, Sergeant Suga, that thing is sweet. Where'd you get it? Shut up, Heath. Stop asking dumb questions. And that was about the level of response I was used to from him, and I chuckled to myself and let him walk off. Over the next several weeks, he showed up with about ten different vehicles. At first, I just sort of put this in the back of my head, but it started to bother me more and more. There was a new vehicle more frequently than some of the people in our unit bathed. They would show up behind the MWR, behind the porta potty, and the 20-foot-long generators. And that was odd enough, because most people parked in the parking lot in front of the MWR. So when I saw Suga hopping in and out of all these random vehicles, I finally decided I was going to figure out where the hell he was getting all of these things. I tracked down one of the other NCOs and I asked him, Hey, Sarn, where's Suga getting all these cars from? Shit, man. You shouldn't ask. And Sergeant Ravis hung his head and shook it with force. Ravis has this sullen look all the time when he was sober. Hanging his head, looking, and scuffing his feet wasn't too abnormal, but he got this particularly pained look in his eye when I started asking questions I probably shouldn't. Getting told I shouldn't ask, for me, is always a straight-up challenge. And this was a challenge I was willing to accept. Over the next week, I asked anyone with any chance of knowing what the fuck was up. Hey, you, give me some information. In the end, after asking a dozen or so people, I pieced it all together. The army has these green or orange plastic keys that are used to access fuel points. There may be other colors, but these are the two I remember seeing the most. Green was uh, green was for unleaded, and orange was for diesel, and I might have that mixed up. I actually think it's green was diesel, orange was unleaded, but it's hard to remember at this point. They sort of look like little cubes, and if you haven't seen one, I can't do any justice to my description. But Suga wasn't allowed to have a gas key, which would have given him a way to fill up all of his trucks. So instead of finding a way to acquire gas... He was buying vehicles 
and selling them when he was about to run out of gas. He'd get the person he was buying it from to fill it up first and then drive it till it was empty. He'd been ordered several times to stop buying cars, but he continued doing so, being only slightly more careful about hiding his new whip every time he picked it up. Eventually, I think he got caught again and formally reprimanded because I didn't see him with any trucks again after a while. Or maybe he'd bought every vehicle he'd been able to find on post. Chapter 7. Pooh Story. Fallout 3 was released while I was deployed. This is a video game for people that aren't familiar with them. I purchased a bootleg copy from one of the bazaars on post to see if I'd like the game, and I did. So I wanted to buy a real copy. I believe in paying for my music, my movies, my games, and the only reason I initially bought a copy of Fallout from the bootlegger is that I wasn't sure it would run on my laptop. My laptop at that point was three or four years old, and so having confirmed it would run without any issues, I planned out my entire day off to go to the PX, the post exchange, and get a copy. Thankfully, the threat level was pretty low at the moment, so it would just be a quick trip in PTs, my physical training uniform. I woke up a few hours earlier than usual and grabbed what I needed to go to the PX. I'd been a bit sick on and off that week, but I didn't think too much of it. Later on in my deployment, I'd have a few reasons to be hypervigilant about my stomach conditions, but that's a story for later. So, my chew, my house basically, was at the end of one of our pads. We had rows upon rows of trailers segmented into two-person and three-person living spaces. These were lined with 15-foot tall gray stone barriers that were five to seven feet in width. Imagine a trailer park with tombstone-like stones set close to one another, a bit like Stonehenge. These pads were about a mile-by-mile mile square, and they seemed to be divided between housing pads and unit mission-specific areas. Being at the edge of the pad was nice for being able to get out onto the main road. The paths on the pad itself were loose stone and were honestly a nightmare to walk on. The closest bathroom to me was about a quarter mile away from my chew, and that seemed pretty darn close compared to what some people had to deal with. Camp Liberty was a tan brown dream world. And by dream, I mean nightmare. The lack of color not on the tan brown spectrum became harrowing after a few weeks, and occasionally you'd see a palm tree, but even that green was often covered in a dusting of tan sand or dirt. There are a few ways to get to the PX, and the easiest was taking one of the shuttles, but you'd usually have to wait somewhere between 15 minutes and a half hour for one to rattle by. When I wasn't in a hurry, I'd walk, because even though the sights weren't particularly amazing, it was nice to be alone for a while. And this runs counter to almost every single order in the army. But I had a habit of going places by myself, and I was lucky this habit never got me into trouble, as I could have ended up hurt or facing disciplinary action. In fact, in Korea, I spent a lot of time going places by myself, which was amazing. It wasn't uncommon for me to do this in Iraq either, while I was on base at least. So, my walking path to the PX consisted of a half mile or so through or around the housing pads, past our supply buildings, and across a mix of hand-dug drainage ditches to the main post road. Crossing that road brought me along a canal bank. Across the way, you could see an airfield if you squinted, and this canal appeared to be a little bit older, and it was likely built during Saddam's reign. 
There were palm trees and other brush planted alongside, and overall, it didn't smell like shit most days. At the edge of the canal was a series of buildings that looked like they were made of stone taken from the desert sand. They were the same tan color as the ground. This was the first building we'd seen when we pulled onto the post, and it was also the same area I'd spent most of my time for the religious events while I was deployed. So, as I passed these real buildings, the palm trees lining the street swayed in the breeze. It was a pleasant day. The temperature wasn't too bad, probably about 85 at most. And without incident, I made it to the PX. Buying the game was straightforward. I browsed the PX for a few minutes, grabbed what I wanted, and left. No stress. I didn't even buy anything for Burger King that trip, which was some shocking level of self-control. I had one goal. I focused on it, and I moved on. The stress came when I was walking back to my chew. Now, keep in mind, this trip was at most a mile, as the crow flies. However, with the twists and turns and maze-like quality of the roads and buildings, it was probably about three or four miles walk or slightly more. The PX was a quarter mile behind me when it started. The stomach cramps came out of nowhere. I felt my guts squeeze together like a vice was twisting my innards. It was nearly a half mile away from any bathrooms I knew of. I was at least a half mile away from the PX porta potties. And these cramps weren't going away. They were getting stronger, closer, more painful. I started clenching my ass cheeks and walking on my tiptoes. I considered the implication of squatting over the canal and decided against it. I certainly didn't need to get in trouble for public nudity for having to take a shit. I clenched my M16 in the plastic bag with my game, and I similarly clenched my teeth. I started moving quicker, trying to find the happy medium between clenching and moving quickly. I shuffled along, looking, searching, hoping I could find somewhere to void my bowels. Finally, near the adobe tan-shaped building, I saw a porta john. Rushing as quickly as my body would let me, I pushed toward what I saw as my salvation. I could feel the clench, twist, cramp, pushing, pulling. Oh, fuck. I didn't, I didn't make it. <laughs> I was about 10 feet away when everything let loose. I had controlled myself for as long as my body was capable. I quickly ducked in the porta potty and tore off my PT shorts and underwear. And finishing quickly wasn't a problem. Everything left came out in one big whoosh. The humid chemical scent of the Porta John surrounded me in what was a sadly familiar haze. I hesitantly looked down at the mess I had made within my shorts, and I noticed that thankfully nothing had escaped my underwear. I breathed a sigh of pseudo relief. PT shorts have a liner in them as they're designed so you don't have to wear any undergarment, but 99% of people I know do. So I wadded up what was left of my underwear and looked around. Poked my head out of the porta potty. There wasn't a trash can anywhere in sight. I looked back and forth and all around the plastic shit box. I looked back into the porta shitter and I threw my underwear right into the porta john opening. Where else was I going to put them? There's no way I was going to try and wash them and or take them to the cleaners in the state they were in. I imagine they already hated getting all of our shit and uh, mud-stained clothes, so no, 
The best thing to do was throw them away, and the only place to do that was right into the shit receptacle itself. In they went, and off I went back to my chew. The kicker. The official version of Fallout 3 would not play on my laptop. The bootleg worked fine, but the official copy deemed my computer too slow to run the game. Though in the end, I ended up gifting it to my friend Danville. Chapter 8. A Tesla Story with Danville. Eccentricity is a trait of military service members. There's this perception in the general populace that military men and women are tall, well-muscled, and clean-cut. They're confident, strong, and generally badasses. Those service members exist, but honestly, they are the minority. Most service members are weird, strange, and bizarre people in every way you can imagine. Sure. Most are in some semblance of physical shape and conditioning, but PT isn't really that great of a workout method, and there's a range of fat, skinny, and generally round, or avocado-shaped in my case, people that fill the ranks. On top of that, every social oddity you can imagine is represented by someone, and I'm not saying this to be negative to anyone. I'm a weirdo too. I'm just letting you know that the classic romantic ideal of a Captain America-type soldier is pretty far from the mark. Honestly, the Captain America pre-super serum, that's a lot closer to the truth. So, that brings me to my friend Danville. Prior to being deployed, I'd only run across this gentleman a time or two. He was eccentric. I once described him as a mad scientist, and honestly... That's a pretty accurate description. Now, when I say eccentric, I mean eccentric to the already eccentric service member. He is the weirdest of the weird, and I love him all the more for it. At the moment, um, he's just uh, going through a divorce, so things have changed a little bit uh, in his life, but he has a habit of finding houses and places and rebuilding them from the bottom up. He had a pet snapping turtle that ended up biting a pipe and flooding his basement. And yes, he had a pet snapping turtle. He's prone to wearing cowboy hats. And nope, he's not from or living in or near Texas, as far as I know. Danville was not cut out to be army material. As I understand it, he did have some sort of patriotic drive to join, but he really wasn't the type of person that made a good soldier. At heart, he's an engineer. He's always looking for ways to fix things he sees around him, to spot inefficiencies and make large-scale changes to make those things more efficient. However, he'd enlisted as an E-4 specialist, and he was never promoted. This meant he was perpetually trapped with great ideas and ways to change things for the better, but with none of the rank required to actually change anything. Danville is an awesome source for many of my great army memories, but I want to focus on one of the strongest memories I have of him first. I was sitting in the computer center of the MWR early on in my shift, kind of spaced out, playing Civilization 3 on my laptop, and at this point, I probably only had a small handful of interactions with the man, so I'm not completely sure why he sought me out, But this was the beginning of a very long and strong friendship. So I'm sitting there, laptop on the counter, chin propped up with my hands, 
trying to decide what to do with the Koreans that were about to evade Greece in Civilization Three. to be fair. In walks Danville. He's the kind of guy you could describe as a cross between stereotypically Roman features and the Disney version of Ichabod Crane. At the time, he had his head shaved, but any time it grew even a small amount, you could see various bald patches. He either had a manic expression caused by one of his ideas, or a forlorn, melancholic expression that would have drowned a cheerleader in sorrow. This time, he was in manic mode. Heath, I've got the idea of a lifetime. It will literally change the world, he said hurriedly with a bit of hand-waving. When I said mad scientist, I meant it literally. So I'd only woken up an hour or so before, and I was certainly unprepared for this verbal and mental assault. Yeah? Yeah, see? Here's my idea. He pulled out a piece of paper, pointing at it emphatically and growing more and more animated. You know how Tesla was working on ways to collect electricity out of the air, right? Yeah, I'm aware of that. I'm a Tesla nerd. How'd you know that? Fantastic! See? This is my design to catch ambient radio waves and turn them into electricity. He said this with a glee that would have would that would not have been out of place in a Doc Savage novel. And really the rise and fall of his voice was something out of a 30s radio drama. So looking over his scrawled schematic, it looked legit. This is actually an idea that seemed to have some merit. We went back and forth for over an hour, talking over the concept, me picking it apart, pointing out holes in the concept. And in the end, it was a great idea, something that I think legitimately could work. At the time, I remember being slightly shocked. I thought Danville was just strange and didn't yet know he was a fucking genius. So as I understand it, he eventually was granted a patent for the idea, and he sold it to a company that was purchasing patents related to this sort of electrical collection mechanism. I have no idea if we'll ever see it used in real life, but it seems like it should work. And I think it could revolutionize the world. Chapter 9. Van Story. At one point, Danville was tasked with driving our company van, which was used as a shuttle. This was probably the worst job for someone like Danville. I'm not sure why, but he wasn't really needed for the core mission of his shop, and so he, like me, ended up taking on various random, semi-useful tasks while we were deployed. Putting him on the shuttle was sort of seen as a punishment by some, as it was one of the most boring jobs you could imagine doing. It was even more boring than manning the MWR, and that's saying something. So Danville was put in charge of the van. I remember it as a red 10-passenger van, what the Army usually calls a TMP, or temporary motor pool, but the color might have been any color under the sun. At this point, the detail has left my brain. What I do remember is the constant veneer of mud on the plastic floor. I remember watching people spray it out with hoses, and I remember seeing a dozen or so people crammed into it on their way to the DFAC. That's the military cafeteria. I remember seeing one person or another seething behind the wheel. I particularly remembered seeing the dejected, hopeless, melancholic, and depressed visage of Danville. Someone is going to tell me those are all synonyms, but none capture the absolute destitute despair I'd seen in his face when he was driving. 
A few weeks into him being assigned to this mission, I started to hear rumbling about how crazy he was getting. There were a few instances of people being shot or hurt on base, and there was an attack at the mental health facility. That hit the national news, and it was a horrible situation. Worse, it was the same facility that I knew Danville had visited, and thinking back on it, he'd visited that facility around the same time it was attacked by a fellow soldier. Danville was, I think, justifiably a bit stressed about the situation. He was already having some depression issues and needed mental health support, but the place that was supposed to be safe had proven to be anything but. He started demanding that anyone getting into the van give him their magazines, which, though I can see why he would ask, wasn't something that people saw as helpful, nor a thing they were willing to do. To be clear, I don't mean magazines that you read. I mean the type of magazines that holds bullets within them. And anyone in the army calls those rounds, by the way. So, one day I'm sitting in the parking lot near the MWR. A few people were standing in the smoke area. I was tired, as perpetual exhaustion was a way of life for me. The van pulled in, and I heard the screaming before I even saw the vehicle. Danville was screaming that people had to give him their magazines. The people were refusing to do so, and he declared he wouldn't drive anyone that wasn't willing to part with their rounds. It's one of those semi-reasonable requests in theory, but honestly, everyone was carrying at least 30 rounds with them at all times. Carrying a weapon and rounds to use it in was something everyone did, and you could theoretically get in trouble for losing your rounds in magazine. No one in their right mind was going to give some random person all of their ammo. Danville pulled the van into a parking space and launched into a tirade where everyone climbed out of the van. He was taken off that mission a few hours later. The command was willing to put people on that detail as a punishment, but they weren't willing to put someone on that mission that was screaming at people about the rounds of ammunition. Part of me wondered if this wasn't a bit of a trick on his part, but honestly, he was in a pretty rough space, and he didn't need to be on that mission any longer. Chapter 10, The MWR It behooves me. I hate that phrase. It gets overused constantly in the army. That being said, it fits here, so we'll roll with it. It behooves me to describe the primary location in hell to which I was assigned. This was my version of World War I trenches, my version of the foxhole, my version of the container of sorrow and war. And I don't claim that it was as bad as any of those. But, just like there are many M16s out there, this was my place in the war machine. I worked the night shift six days per week. My shift was usually from 7pm to 7am, and these times weren't consistent, and we experimented with four days on, two days off, seven days on with shorter shifts, and even with rotating shifts. A few months in, I pushed hard for set shifts of no longer than 14 hours and at least one day off a week. That was the pattern we eventually settled into. The morale, welfare, and recreation building was on the edge of our pad. The containing walls around the acre of my so-called unit's home were double-layered, and the MWR buildings were, be were between the two layers. The three buildings were all made of different material. The computer building was first, and it was a double-wide trailer with corrugated walls and a tent covering its wooden roof. The gym was a tent, with an extra long roof that covered part of the computer building and the library. The library was primarily used as an office by various NCOs and occasionally as a training room 
but it was officially designated an educational office and library. I have a good feeling that the lock was used by some soldiers for some private liaisons while we were deployed, but I have no proof of such a thing, nor would I want any. Stretched over all the buildings was a series of tarps which obscured what was located under them, kept some sand off, and acted as a rain guard when needed. The computer building was about 400 square feet total and was split into three rooms. When you walked in, there was a desk to the left with a long countertop, two doors to the right, and one directly in front of you. The fact that I can still picture it perfectly should tell you something about the imprint this place made on my mind. There was a primary computer at the desk, and a corkboard on the wall with a series of numbers and letters. On the long countertop that led into the main room, you'd see my laptop and two clipboards for signing in and out. One was for the phone line, one was for the computer line. Across from the computer uh, was a weapons rack, and people were supposed to place any weapon in the rack before using the phone or computers. I'd place my M16 in the rack at the start of every shift. Next to the desk was an old leather couch, facing a big screen TV, and a homemade entertainment center made out of plywood. There were two tables and two more couches creating a square for people to watch movies or play video games if they wanted to do so. In the room to the right, after walking in, were about 12 phones, lined up on opposite walls. Usually at least two or three soldiers would be in there at one time or another, screaming and yelling at someone on the other side. There was a four to five inch high piece of plywood between each phone, and I'm assuming those were designed for privacy purposes, but a person had to keep their head to the desk for that to be effective. I think the amount of irate calls home easily outnumbered the loving family discussions you'd hope to hear from deployed soldiers. In the room directly across from the door, there was a series of computers. The internet connection wasn't perfect, but it wasn't terrible either. Usually soldiers were given 15 minutes each if there was a line, but frequently on the night shift there wasn't and I'd let people use the computer for as long as they wanted. The computer area was relatively quiet. If people got bad news, they tended to keep it to themselves, whereas the phone region was frequently filled with curses and a slammed phone. This was the reason we didn't let people have their weapons while they were on the phone. At least grumpily moving back to get it gave them a moment or two to calm down. In theory. While sitting at the desk one early morning, a phone conversation got more and more heated. I actually had to ask the NCO politely to tone it down twice, which probably made things worse. When he finally left, his face was tomato red, and the look on his face spoke murder. I wasn't a huge fan of the guy, and I don't really know what was going on, but this honestly made me dislike him even more. The TV in the main room was rarely used, even though we had an Xbox, a PlayStation 3, and a metric ton of movies. The fact that most people had their own laptops likely kept people from wanting to use a big TV in a common area. Our common room did have one regular use, though, and that was Dungeons & Dragons. But I'll get to that story later. Chapter 14. Sleep. And no, you haven't missed anything. I've decided to skip a few of the stories that are in the physical copy of the book and jump into some key stories that were... Um, made available by backers. So we're going to be jumping to chapter 14, which is titled Sleep. I generally fall asleep pretty quickly during deployment. Considering I went to bed exhausted every morning, it shouldn't be too shocking. That being said, I struggled to get a solid eight hours for a variety of reasons. 
While deployed, we were still required to do regular training that the Army required of all soldiers. This included EO, or equal opportunity, sexual assault prevention, and things like social media policy. Some of this training was useful, but honestly, a lot of it was repetitive and poorly designed. Even worse, these mandatory training sessions were always during the day. So I'd work 12 to 14 hours overnight, ending at 7 a.m., and then be expected to go to a training at 10 a.m., which wouldn't be the worst thing if the training was near my CHU or near the MWR. No, it took at least an hour of travel to get to the SES motor pool where we held training. A bit less if I caught the bus at the right moment, a bit more if I didn't, and had to wait each way for the connecting bus. Then, an hour or more back, and then work would start at 5 p.m. After the second day in a row of this, a month or so into the deployment, I rebelled. I had to take the post bus because the unit refused to allow me to use a golf cart for this task and also refused to use our shuttle to bring us to the training. At the time, I would have given anything to go back in time and tell myself to stay in Korea. I could have re-enlisted and got an extra $400 a month to stay there. It might have been terrible too in the end, but it wouldn't have been this level of terrible. There was no way in fucking hell I was going to work nights in a hellhole, hot fucking dirt sandwich, and not get more than two hours of sleep interrupted. I refused to go to the training. I literally told anyone that I would listen that I would not go, and I would gladly take whatever punishment they dished out. It was utterly unfair, foolish. We had at least a dozen people on various missions that worked nights. I requested and then demanded we have a training at night for us all. At the very least, I asked they hold training after 2 p.m. so we'd get the mandatory Army four hours of rest, which regulation required we be allowed. This went all the way up to the brigade commander, and eventually we got approval to have a separate training or be allowed to hold trainings in the late afternoon to compensate for our schedule. Then the trainings were reduced to no more than two per month, and the issue largely went away. After the fact, I also found out that the other people working night shifts had already been allowed to avoid the training during the day, and it was only the people at the MWR that were being treated like this, which was just what we needed, another punishment for being assigned to this work detail. The other reason I'd usually not stay asleep was that I'd have to pee. I learned early on in the deployment to hold my piss for as long as physically possible, even while sleeping. Still... 1.30 p.m. would roll around and I'd be ready to burst. I'd get up, grab my weapon, walk the two-tenths of a mile to the bathroom, and urinate like a horse. No way I'd get away with pissing out the front door in the middle of the day. Once I marched that far both ways, I'd struggle to get back to sleep again. Another reason? Maintenance would always stroll by about 11 a.m. to check air conditioners. They did this at least once per week until we realized we could get night shift stickers to put on the door so they'd leave us alone. In the meantime, I almost broke a few faces that knocked on my door at the absolute worst time possible. The worst reason I'd not sleep was indirect fire and the testings of the phalanx system. The phalanx is a device used to protect against mortars, missiles, and rocket-propelled grenades. Basically, it's a radar targeting system that creates a series of smaller explosions around a larger projectile to encourage that projectile to explode in flight, rather than an impact. It was highly effective on the first shot, but it was hardly perfect. And it was 
almost perfect on any second shot. So this meant occasionally something would get blown up on base by a mortar. It also meant they tested the system out at least once a week, sometimes more. Which, considering the usefulness of the technology, I'm not complaining about the tests at all. I know, and I'm glad that it saved people's lives. When they did test it, though, the alert system would sound. And the first time, I was up and in body armor immediately. When I realized no one else reacted that way, I stopped caring. Eventually, I would sleep through the initial alert and wake up to hearing the phalanx shooting, and then the all-clear alert. At that point, I'd shrug and say, well, I'm obviously not dead, and I'd roll back over. Still, I didn't sleep perfectly ever when that happened. In fact, while sleeping, this left me in a semi-constant state where I expected to die at any moment. I think I've just realized some of the source of my current insomnia issues. Chapter 17. Heathen in the Desert As a heathen, I have some belief in charms, magic, and the application of religious iconography as protective amulet. Most of that is probably a form of placebo. I wouldn't say it disqualifies it as a useful from the perspective of positive mental focus, but I'm a skeptic-ish, but I've seen enough to make me realize I don't have all the answers for the reason things happen in the world. So, prior to deployment, my wife gave me a charm, which I kept in one of my pockets at all times. On top of that, I carved runes into the heat shields of my M16, I also wore my Thor's hammer, and I carried a medallion I'd made as a youth in honor of Heimdall. I was pretty tricked out on ritual protective gear. I also had my copy of the Poetic Edda, which I had brought to basic training and every duty station. My initial expectation was that my personal religious items would be the extent of my religious interaction while I was deployed, and honestly I wasn't too stressed by that. A month or so into my deployment, though, I noticed someone had put up a sign in the latrine for the events in all the chapels on the bases around us, and one of them was a Wiccan slash open circle. However, the sheet of paper was smeared around the chapel, name, time, and date, and looking back on it, I kind of wonder if someone hadn't done that intentionally, but I can't be sure. I knew there was an event, but I didn't know any of the details, and I wasn't going to randomly walk into the chapel trying to figure it out. I also didn't have the t time in the day to really try out and have it not work out. So in the end, I randomly stumbled into another latrine a month or so later and saw the same sign. And this one was intact. Well, come to find out, they met at the one uh, at the chapel closest to where I lived and worked. In fact, it was on the same pad as our MWR, though it was on the opposite side, about a mile away. Once I knew when and where people met, I had to wrangle some social anxiety to ensure I actually attended. I finally got out of my own way. The open circle met on Thursday and Saturday, and Thursday turned out to be my standard night off, which was pretty convenient. The group also met once a month for a ritual, so the twice-weekly meetings were equivalent to a prayer study group where we talked about various paganisms and religious specifics. That first Thursday was a poor introduction. And thankfully, I kept going because things got a lot better. I arrived to a large group of highly eclectic individuals, which wasn't incredibly surprising, but it wasn't where my mindset was, and I was a little shocked. I consider myself pretty straightforward and low-key, and I was a bit shocked to see the vibrancy these folks brought to their beliefs and actions. And I talked to a few more people before the meeting started, but I'm usually poor at initial outgoing behavior, so I took my time to get to know everyone. 
The chapel we used was painted white, and it seemed to be kept a little bit cleaner than the other structures around it. There was a soccer field with no grass, but uh, that was to one side, and the other was uh, an intersection of main post roads. As you looked straight at the building, there was a set of double doors, and the entire structure was surrounded by the type of blast walls that surrounded most of the pad. Overall, this was probably one of the best built buildings that was built by American service members that I saw while there, excluding any of the dining facilities. When you walked in, the floor had trim on it. That by itself was pretty surprising. There was a 30-foot long hallway with four offices, two on each side. A final door on the right was a large walk-in materials closet. We stored all of our ritual equipment in this space. The chapel itself was quite large. You could probably have fit 200 or so people into the space without any trouble. There was an assortment of pews and free chairs of various types. The altar area was quite large, but we didn't use that space for anything. Instead, we would pull a series of chairs into a circle. Surprising, right? The circle would sometimes include 50 people, and we would engage in lively and interesting discussions. When we'd get the circle built, introductions were first. I'm a witch, one mustachioed older gentleman proclaimed, as did a few others. Some were more specific, Thelemite, worshippers of Aphrodite, Guardian. At the time, I said Ausatru, and I was the only heathen of any sort that first night. I've got to clarify, there is a bit of a division between the heathen and pagan communities, in the U.S. in particular. Some of this differentiation is based on style of practice, some of it is based on history. The neo-pagan and neo-heathen movements have overlapping and different origins. Both of the modern movements rose out of the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, and paganism can be loosely lumped into Wicca and then smaller eclectic or reconstructionist faiths. Eclectic pagans generally tend toward a belief in a form of universal deity in some form or another. Reconstructionist faiths are often focused on reclaiming the specific worldview and practice of particular cultures, so Roman, Greek, Celtic groups come to mind as examples of the second. Wicca is more broadly the first, particularly for Wiccans that came to the faith through the New Age section of most bookstores. And I apologize, this is very reductive for any pagans and heathens reading or listening to this. I know this isn't as accurate as you'd prefer, and please know, I respect you all and respect your differences. I'm sure someone will come along and say, I know nothing. That's fine. I know I know nothing. Prior to coming to this open circle, I had a lot of poor experiences with most Wiccans and eclectic pagans. I wasn't sure I'd fit in with this new group of people, and honestly, I stood out for good or bad, but I will say this for posterity's sake. I liked nearly everyone that attended. They were mostly good people. That first night, the class was casting a circle. Uh, this is a Wiccan tradition designed for magical practice. It isn't something I necessarily do and still don't do. I was trying to be respectful to the folks teaching, but I just felt a bit out of place, a bit silly, and honestly, I was judging way too harshly. And judgment religiously isn't a problem in heathen circles, but judging people like I was doing isn't helpful to building bonds with new folks. After that first week, I avoided going for more than a few weeks after that. But in the end, I decided to try it out, try it out again, and thankfully, my first week was not indicative of the entire group or my overall experience, and I made quite a few friends who I'm still friends with today. If you're reading this, I love you all. One thing I struggled with was, though, the preponderance for hugging, which lots of members had. Amber, in particular, she was an ebullient short woman with particularly large breasts, and I point this out 
only to note that she had an 11-foot-tall personality and a habit of squashing people to her in massive hugs. It was uncomfortable, to say the least, and I liked to hug people. It was just the environment of Iraq which made me hesitant to feel like hugging. Um, there was also Janice, who I thought was pleasant, uh, a nice relaxing person to be around. Lovejoy was a good egg, too. Um, there was the mustachioed warrant officer witch. There were a few other heathens who I liked as well. Uh, one, Balls, and the other, James. One of their names is changed to protect their identity. I'll let you guess who. Then there was Betty, uh, a more traditional Wiccan, and a whole cast and crew of interesting personalities. All in all, thank you to everyone there. You helped make hell relatively tolerable during the times we got to spend together.